Welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media. We provide business professionals with insights and ideas for protecting their people from the vast array of threats facing organizations today. Each week, you'll hear advice and best practices from an experienced safety leader. Here's your host, Peter Steinfeld. Well, hello. I hope you're having a safe and smooth week. This episode is about workplace violence prevention. You'll hear from today's guest, Matt Doherty, how the right policies, procedures, and training can help any organization conduct behavioral threat assessments and early interventions to help keep their people safe. Matt is the Managing Director of Workforce Risk Management at Sikich. One of Matt's specialties is coaching organizations to develop policies and trainings that help prevent workplace violence. Let's dive in. Hey, Matt. Thanks so much for being here today. I really appreciate your time. It's really a pleasure and honor to be here. Well, I'd like to jump in and start asking about your career background because it's actually quite fascinating and I know it really informs your current role. So can you tell us just a little bit about your background and how you arrived at Sikich? Sure. In my previous life, I uh, retired from the Secret Service. I was the special agent in charge of the National Threat Assessment Center. It's a really new concept. It started in the 90s after targeted violence incidents were affecting law enforcement and public sector schools such as Columbine. And we were charged with conducting research and training on targeted violence prevention, where a known or knowable assailant selects their target prior to the attack. So with a lot of preventive experience, which is really one of the Secret Service's core mission areas, we're not looking to make an arrest for somebody attacking the president. We want to prevent it in the first place. So a lot of uh, entities, we passed along and disseminated that training. And out of that, for the last 15 years, I've been involved in building workplace violence prevention programs. And how we arrived at Sikich, Sikich was actually a client. And we were conducting training for them. Sikich is a wonderful company. They do audit, IT security, crisis communications, and cybersecurity. And it was just an HR advisory. So it was just a natural fit for us as they made the investment for our team to build a workforce risk management program. And it's just been a natural fit and a a great partnership. It's an honor to work for Sikich. I love that way of looking at things. And I don't know, I never thought about it, but that's what the Secret Service does is they spend an inordinate amount of time planning and preparing and making sure that when you get into a situation, nothing bad's going to happen. So a lot of organizations out there are probably thinking, how can I do this? How can I take what the Secret Service does and bring that into my organization, be it small or large? So can you give us a, just a quick overview of wor- a workplace violence prevention program? Like what are the core components? Sure. Well, um, and and it's no coincidence that OSHA, SHRM, which is the Society of Human Resource Management, as is, which is the security director, ASIS, the the security director trade association. And I'm also a member of the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. We follow their guidelines, standards, best practices. So what that looks like is we focus on key components, which is the leadership buy-in from an organization, We support Fortune 500 companies, small businesses, medium-sized businesses, and federal agencies. It really is leadership commitment and training, internal and both external, and having that ability to actually work threat case consultations. Would you say one of the core mistakes that organizations make is focusing too much on what are we going to do when something happens, as opposed to really thinking about how to prevent it from happening in the first place? Is that a mindset you have to shift? Absolutely. You shouldn't have to wait for an incident. Post-incident response is a best practice. 
but we're talking about prevention in the first place. So a second part answer to your question is, oftentimes we go into companies and and we'll get their employee handbook or code of ethics, and we notice a trend towards zero tolerance. In other words, that one sentence epiphany in the workplace violence policies that workplace violence won't be tolerated. Well, we know that. Fairly confident in a company that if there's a, a direct threat or a fight in the lobby of the office building or somebody is committing domestic violence against an employee, which is a huge issue, that doesn't fall into zero tolerance. In other words, what are the warning signs of untreated mental health, somebody being a victim of domestic abuse, all these preventive measures? Too oftentimes we see a punitive component in the policies that we help them modify to a best practice workplace violence prevention program. And just generally speaking, do you find that most organizations are fairly mature and you're just sanding out the edges or do people have a long way to go to improve what they're doing? I think it runs the gamut. We've had Fortune 500 companies that have robust programs that we applaud. We take a look at those as we customize training. And again, some companies, uh, you'd be surprised how large and big and famous they are, renowned for what they do, whether it being the manufacturing sector or the energy sector, that they have a long way to go and that we have to help them modify their policies in order to disseminate training and develop their programs. Well, outside policies and procedures specifically, can you give us an example of what prevention looks like in action? Sure. I think a good example is going into a company and looking at their handbook, and we notice that protective orders or restraining orders are not addressed. When you hear the statistic coming out of the pandemic that 40% of women killed in the workplace are killed by an intimate partner, it's an epidemic in and of itself. So what are those warning signs so that coworkers can report if they suspect their coworker is a victim of domestic abuse? But the best practice for that is to voluntarily give your restraining order to discreetly and confidentially reminding your workforce that it's against most state labor laws to discriminate against somebody merely because they're a victim of domestic abuse. Oftentimes, the restraining orders obtained where they live. So we'll coordinate or, or establish that program where legal counsel of a particular company or agency may want to expand that protective order to the workplace. We may want to get a picture of the person. And the thing that really is most preventive about that is oftentimes law enforcement jurisdictions do not share information such as protective orders. So if you're in another county where you got the protective order, if it's expanded to the workplace, you should be liaisoning with local law enforcement around the workplace. You may want to get that person a special parking space because their points of vulnerability are arriving to and from work. All of those issues, I can't tell you the number of times, and we'll talk about it in a case study, that protective orders that the company was unaware of protective orders when they really could take some positive proactive steps. One of the challenges I hear a lot of the people I speak with say that are concerning to them is people are not willing to speak up. If they're the ones that are in trouble, they don't want to say anything because they're embarrassed. And then people who aren't in trouble but see trouble don't want to say anything either because they don't want to get someone else in trouble or raise their head up and be slapped down because of that. So what do you do to help organizations train their people to, to be okay with speaking up? Well, first of all, you're spot on with that. The lack of reporting because of the punitive nature of the policies that workplace violence won't be tolerated. Therefore, your reaction is, I don't want to get involved. But I'll tell you, when we've responded and training after the fact where people have been harmed, killed with fatalities at a company and the devastating effect of the guilt that coworkers feel 
that they did not report a concerning situation. So really emphasizing, you're spot on with emphasizing the non-punitive nature of reporting. You're not there to get somebody in trouble. You're there to ensure the safety of the workplace. And the earlier the reporting takes place, the better, because it's all about early intervention to prevent any type of pathway to violence. Would you recommend that organization obviously train people on that mentality when they first join a company, but then also repeatedly mention that maybe at least once a year or maybe through biannual trainings or something like that? Oh, there definitely should be annual training. We also leverage hotlines. We may be in the manufacturing sector and there might be an anonymous hotline for reporting the cars not being built right or not to specifications. We leverage those hotlines for anonymous reporting. Some people may not be comfortable reporting that their coworker might be a victim of domestic abuse or my boss is suffering some untreated mental health and is experiencing some life stressors, but we're not comfortable reporting that. So we'd like to leverage that re- anonymous reporting hotline as well. Well, in any of these situations, it seems like law enforcement or some kind of public assistance might need to be called in to help with the situation. So what can an organization do to plan and collaborate with law enforcement or other public assistance agencies should the need arise? Should they wait till the emergency happens? Should they get ahead of it? If they get ahead of it, who do they talk to? How does that work? That relationship should be established well in advance. Also, there's been a dramatic shift in law enforcement. If I called law enforcement 15 to 20 years ago on a concerning termination that perhaps HR is going through for concerning behaviors, chances are law enforcement would not get involved. They would say, look, we're not involved in HR matters. Call us when a crime has been committed and we'll investigate it, we'll respond to it. And they realized with these active shooter incidents that the behavior concerned others in advance. It's no coincidence that now the International Association of Chiefs of Police, the Fraternal Order of Police, the Police Executive Research Forum have encouraged their members, if you're asked to participate in a threat assessment process as needed, you should do so. They have learned that they'd much rather respond to an early intervention, perhaps do some inquiries into the community to see if that person's been a nuisance in community, visits to the home, all of those. And these recent media incidents are ripe with those law enforcement interactions where the place of work is unaware of those. So they've been encouraged to have that relationship, not as a standing member of the workplace violence prevention process. We don't want them standing in the middle of the hallway with their gun and their uniform on, but we want them to be discreetly aware of certain situations. For instance, a massive rift day, you know, on a Friday at a company that can be ripe with life stressors, local police should be notified of that. You'd rather have them a cell phone call away, fully aware of what's going on, as opposed to calling 911 after an incident. Well, like we were talking about before, a lot of people are embarrassed to say something when they think they need help or they think they've seen something. I think organizations think the same way. Like, "Ah, I'm embarrassed to call my local law enforcement. I don't know if I should reach out. They seem like they're busy people. How can you help change that mindset? What would you say to an organization that is thinking that way? Well, if you do have a security component, they'd be remiss if they didn't already establish that liaison with law enforcement, Mm. whether it's the perimeter security in their parking lot or these workplace violence prevention incidents internally from a customer, visitor, family member, whatever the concerning situation is, establish that relationship early. We are very experienced at that, and we do that on behalf of companies if they don't have that capability. But they should establish a relationship well in advance of any potential incident. Do you have any other stories where 
this training has resulted in better outcomes than otherwise would have happened that you could share with our, our listeners? Great question. Yeah, we had a couple of cases that I could cite that were pretty serious. One was we had a very large insurance company located in the state of Virginia, and we had done a needs assessment, looking at their policies, developing their program. Now we're at the uh, training stage. We're training their employees on warning signs, red flag behaviors, but we're also announcing new reporting strategies, the leveraging of the anonymous hotline, et cetera. And we also, as I alluded to earlier, we announced the new policy about protective and restraining orders. You'll notice in the handbook, we would like you to voluntarily, if you do have a restraining order or protective order, voluntarily bring those to the attention of HR. It will be handled with a lot of discretion and confidentiality. And first of all, let me be clear, this has nothing to do with your professional performance on the job. It is against most state labor laws to discriminate against somebody merely because they're a victim of domestic abuse. And unfortunately, those laws have been passing all across the country because people were discriminated against. If a woman showed up with bruises or appeared to be disheveled from being abused in her home situation, that affected their professional advancement in their career. And people rightfully so recognize that as being blatantly unfair. Now it's against state labor laws. So we announced that and we said, look, we want that protective order. It'll be handled discreetly, but oftentimes it's obtained where you live and maybe we should have expand it to the workplace. We can do a whole host of things. And when we do look at policies, we want to interview the head of HR, the head of legal, the head of security, all the leadership positions, that leadership buy-in that I talked about. But we also want to interview the office managers and executive assistants, administrative assistants, receptionists. They're the front lines. Nobody knows more about the interpersonal dynamics of an office more than those frontline people, way more so than the C-suite of a big organization. So during the break, a office manager who I knew brought up a young lady. She appeared to be in her late 20s, and I could tell she was very distraught. And the CEO could see me from afar at this training for about 1,000 employees. And we went off to the corner very discreetly, and, and I said, what's the circumstances? And I'm expecting to hear companion, boyfriend, whatever the relationship is. And she said, I have a restraining order. And I said, who's it against? She goes, well, I went on a blind date three years ago, and it's the worst mistake I ever made in my life. You know, your heart stopped. Just that could happen to anybody. And she lived in the next county over. We did a couple of things. We got a copy of her restraining order. We asked for a copy of it to make sure, is it a child custody issue or is it evidence of violence? And sure enough, this was some extreme violence against her. She got the restraining order. We had it expanded to the workplace. We got a picture of the person. As a matter of fact, the reception area at that point did not have a panic alarm. We wanted to make sure the picture was posted discreetly. Nobody needed to know the circumstances of it. We also offered her a special parking space. The CEO had a few parking spaces available to him at the front entrance. And gracious enough, kind enough, and that company culture, he said, have her use one of my spaces. The security guards would greet her every morning and escort her in. They didn't need to know the circumstances, just special care and attention. And I liaisoned with local law enforcement around the office. That person was subsequently arrested for other bad things. He was a bad actor. And the CEO called me about two weeks after that person was arrested. He goes, you know, Matt, she's a valued employee. She's been there five years. There's a couple of things I want to observe. First of all, there's no doubt in my mind that other people of her age, her demographic, possibly her gender, knew about this situation in advance, but were afraid to report it because they didn't want to get her in trouble, quote unquote. 
But I also noticed morale has gone up. I'm seeing outstanding reviews at my place to work. The young people here in particular, that demographic, this is a great place to work. They knew about a situation. It was handled professionally. It had nothing to do with her career. As a matter of fact, she was considered a very valuable employee. They cared a lot about her, but that that courtesy, respect, and safety culture that we promote was really had a good ending. And it's just how to successfully not sweep those things under the rug. Again, that statistic of 40% of women killed in the workplace, not that men are exempt from being victims of domestic abuse, but the all practical purposes, the statistics for women are just off the charts. And rather than ignore that situation, when you have workplace incidents with domestic violence, you know, the person coming back, that's where they can find the person. That is where they get a paycheck and are getting their independence from the person. All those issues, that's where they suspect maybe a relationship at the workplace. All those issues can contribute to a volatile environment. And this helped to calm that down and to really not sweep those protective orders under the rug. When I come across a company and I, a large company, Fortune 500 or smaller, you know, do you have a policy on protective orders? They said, no, there's no doubt in my mind that there are protective orders that they didn't know about, that they should know about. And it just has to be handled delicately following those SHRM guidelines as, as far as how to treat those issues, discreetly, confidentiality, et cetera. So it was a good, good ending. Oh, fantastic. And it just goes to show that it's so important for leadership to create this culture of safety first, um, prevention first. It helps keep people safe, but it also improves, like you said, morale. So it absolutely is a win-win. So what else can organizations do to support a workplace violence prevention program? Are there some other items you can uh, discuss with the listeners here? Sure. Getting those policies in, in place, getting those programs in place to address that, some education about untreated mental health, termination best practices. We participate in how to suspend somebody or, or terminate someone, even if it's a RIF day. The big tech companies, for instance, last week had some major RIFs. How to work those cases, how to have safe termination practices. I actually have another example of a, a termination gone bad prior to us being involved, and it's how not to do a termination. And this is where preventive measures were not in place, but we were contacted by a very large manufacturer located in New England. They were headquartered in California. They had several factories throughout New England. And we were called on a Tuesday and said, look, we know you do workforce risk management. You can set up terminations. We were referred. And they said, we want to fire somebody on a Friday. And this was a Tuesday. And that's no pun intended, red flag number one for us, never be in a hurry to fire mm. someone. So we asked, why are you firing him? And they said, well, he's had anger management issues and we heard he's bipolar. And right away, that caused us a lot of consternation. Does the American Disabilities Act mean anything to you? You know, the fact that most mentally ill people in this country are law-abiding citizens, since when is being bipolar considered a danger? But nonetheless, we've helped them put together a severance package, which is a best practice. We extended some employee health benefits. They weren't going to give him any health benefits past his termination date. He was there for about 10 years. And so we actually selected the HR person that would do the termination. We had no relationship with them prior to this. So I had a surveillance person outside just in case it didn't go well at the termination. And sure enough, it didn't go well. He took the, we wanted the benefits package in hard copy so he could bring it home. We knew he was married with a young son. And so the termination took place. He took the benefits package and threw it at the HR person. And I instructed our off-duty security person 
follow him off the campus, make sure he doesn't go back to his desk, all those standard things that we want to make sure everybody's safe at the campus. And again, we weren't involved in this up until that Tuesday, just a, you know 72 hours prior. Well, I get a call from the surveillance person and he says, Matt, we're at the gun store. Oh, man. He's with his own license. He's purchasing weapons. And if you think about it, back to our, there hasn't been any violation of the law. It's not illegal to be fired. It's not illegal to be bipolar. It's not illegal to go to into this particular state with a license and purchase a weapon. But we have concerning situation for sure. We He's on a likely pathway to violence. So we did several things. We had to provide executive protection. We went back to his desk and they found a list of people he didn't like. So we had to have bodyguards placed on residences. And I'll fast forward. This is all going down on a Friday. I uh, called his wife and we have a lot of experience. I have licensed clinical psychologists on staff that can deal with the mental health community. And when I called her, we developed a trusting relationship and she was very upset. There were other weapons missing from the house. And she said he was off his medications. I can't believe he's been an employee for 10 years. I love my husband very much. I can't believe they've done this to him. So we made arrangements for the local police. And again, based on our Secret Service experience and workforce risk management here at Sickage, we made arrangements to have his wife go to get escorted by the police to sign a court-ordered mental health treatment for a 72-hour evaluation. That enabled us to legally get those weapons taken away because he was not in illegal possession of weapons. He didn't threaten anybody. So we were able to locate him the next day on a Saturday. But in the meantime, lots of executive protection. We had to close all the factories throughout New England for this client. And I, as I said, they were located in California. So that Sunday morning, we located that person. We were able to get him committed. Our licensed clinician liaisoned with the mental health facility so we could get them all the information to do a violent risk assessment and get all the facts. But the CEO said, Matt, I'm very grateful no one got hurt. This was clearly a potential for violence, but there's a lot of concerns I have. Besides the fact that I spent a lot of money, losing money, closing the factory, spending money on executive protection that you supplied, but even more serious, people don't want to go back to work. So again, that is where our crisis communications capability comes in. But I frankly told him with their leadership in New England on the line, this shouldn't have happened in the first place. There should have been a threat assessment on him. What motivated him to come to your attention? Does he need EAP? Why is he exhibiting those behaviors when he was considered a pretty good employee for 10 years? But the CEO, you know, but my biggest fear is reputational damage. It made the national news and people are afraid to go back to work. And my reply was, you didn't have a workplace violence prevention policy or a program where warning signs should be reported early and you should have a mechanism to do what we call a behavioral threat assessment. Does this person have the intent, motivation, and capability of carrying on an attack? What would trigger this person? Well, certainly firing him with little notice did not help any. I'm not saying that his behavior should be condoned at the workplace with these anger management issues, but if you don't address the underlying reasons that contribute to a level of care and respect, he likely could be an employee still today. And of course, he couldn't go back to work, but he suffered, that company suffered some be reputational damage. Our crisis communications, we had to do some messaging to get people to go back to work, but it took them quite a bit to recover from that incident, even though nobody was hurt. And those are the key components of developing a program. The return on investment, the damage done if you did have fatalities or injuries, 
is off the charts, but this company survived without any injuries. And yet look at what they had to deal with afterwards, the postmortem on this. Well, that's definitely a good outcome, I think, for all involved for the most part, because the company was able to avoid having anyone hurt, but also the person who could have been doing the hurting didn't get hurt and got the help that he needed and his family preserved a husband. So that's huge. But to your point, this really points back to the fact that you have to get proactive about this stuff. The earlier you can get ahead of it, the less the downstream effect of investment you have to make and the impact of people and the bad press and things like that. Absolutely. And we did engage law enforcement on that case. Again, law enforcement best practices now, when you do have a RIF or a concerning termination for behaviors, there's a, a nomenclature for that. The police call it standbys. And we did have somebody standing by a cell phone call away. But sure enough, he didn't commit an act of violence during the HR action. It was those behaviors that led up to that. And then subsequently purchasing a weapon with his own license and all of those apparently legal things that had the concerning behavior for us that he was on a pathway to violence. Well, can you talk just a bit more about the effect of an employee assistance program and what people should put in place when they think about that in the context of preventative security and safety? Yeah, and there's some nuances of that. Of, of course, just like any organization, some EAP programs are better than others. But first of all, you should have an EAP program. When we read the FBI after action reports of these incidents of workplace violence, one of the commonalities is they experience some type of life stressor, the majority of them. So when you have all of these issues, especially coming out of the pandemic, debt, divorce, illness in the family, somebody in your family needs therapy, those things should come to bear and you should have an, a strong EAP program. But one of the important things about EAP is that EAP is typically, if they're suffering from depression, for instance, they go see a therapist. Well, the therapist is at a disadvantage they don't know all the information, the concerning behaviors that take place. And that's why we have licensed clinical psychologists on staff. Employee assistance programs typically are not trained in conducting violent risk assessments. And unfortunately, when they are referred to EAP, sometimes they'll return to work and a violent risk assessment has not been obtained when you have those concerning behaviors. The other thing we remind people about employee assistance is their duty to warn. Most reputable employee assistance programs for instance, if they're seeing a therapist and I want to, the person says, you know, I could just wring Peter's neck when I come back on Monday morning back to work. That's not a HIPAA privacy situation between a patient and a doctor. That's a public safety exception. So you have to make sure that EAP is aware of their duty to warn and you need to remind them of that. Sometimes they'll farm it out to a therapist and you just need to make sure, notify us if you have any cases where it's a concerning behavior especially those mandatory referrals. So EAP is to be applauded. Oftentimes they're an ad hoc member of a threat management system in a company, but there's some nuances to that and we applaud their programs. It provides a safer workplace for sure. Well, it sounds like organizations out there can use a lot of help. And I do want to point out as we're wrapping things up here that your training is absolutely award-winning, specifically the Outstanding Security Professionals Award that you got back in 2018 for threat management team training. So can you talk just a bit more about your approach to training when you work with organizations? Sure. And, and we've adapted like everyone else has to the pandemic, but we really bucket in in the three principal audiences and they each need different sets of training. First and foremost, what we call foundational. We firmly believe that the workplace violence prevention policies are endorsed by leadership, written in collaboration with leadership, 
The program itself is the responsibility of everyone in the company. They are the front lines. Our every employee, that's why we call it foundational, should get this training. It can be less than an hour uploaded to an LMS, done in person, done virtually. But you know, they need to know those warning signs and red flag behaviors. They need to know the basics of it. We're not asking them to handle the situation. The second bucket of training audience would be the managers. You know, we brief your foundational on these warning signs. How do you manage difficult situations, terminations? How do you de-escalate situations without being biased or judgmental? We educate those managers for that. Last but certainly not least is that best practice endorsed by OSHA, recommended by SHRM, the Society of Human Resource Management, and ASIS, you need to have a multidisciplinary team. You can call it whatever you want to. Many people call it a safe team or a care team. It's fundamental principles is threat management team, but that's the multidisciplinary process of security, HR, legal, and other members as needed, such as employee health and safety, and ad hoc members such as EAP and perhaps local police, and the manager most familiar with the situation. But that's a multidisciplinary process that usually is done in person. It can be done virtually, but that's the best practice to assemble those multidisciplinary teams, because if you look at active assailant events or look at incidents of workplace violence, it's oftentimes the warning signs are known ahead of time. So for instance, how many times have you seen in the media, oh, we knew that person was a problem? Well, maybe you knew it out in the parking lot and HR had it something in their performance files and legal was aware of some type of liability or lawsuit. But we need to make sure that everybody is contributing to that process and that interdisciplinary process. It's no coincidence that every public university, for instance, after Virginia Tech, is required by law to have a threat management team. Well, the same is happening with the private sector. OSHA and those other standards are now promoting, endorsing, or at least strongly recommending guidelines to avoid those liability issues to have a threat management team. So those three buckets, foundational, managerial, and threat management team training. That's a great framework. Thank you for sharing that. As you look back on your career, what are you most proud of? It feels like a public service. What I'm most proud of in the last 15 years, I can cite those two examples, the domestic violence issue. When I hear that that person, she's back, she's continuing a successful career, and yet it could have had disastrous consequences. The near miss of the untreated mental health person that had the anger management issues and not acknowledging the American Disabilities Act and having that attitude towards mental health, that was very satisfying. He wasn't able to return to work, but he was getting mental health treatment. He has another job. He's safely living with his family who loved him very much. It could happen to anyone, these domestic violence situations, these untreated mental health issues. So it, it really feels like a public service when we're putting these programs together. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time today and your commitment to keeping people safe. I certainly learned a lot. It really helped me understand how important proactivity is to employee safety. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, that's all for today on the Employee Safety Podcast. To learn more about Matt and his team, check the links in the show notes of this episode. Please subscribe and follow the show if you haven't already. And don't forget to rate and review us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Have a safe week, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, the industry's most intuitive emergency communication and threat intelligence solution. To learn more about how to protect your people and business during critical events, visit alertmedia.com. Until next time.